Welcome back to another episode of Mark G. Richardson's Remodeling Mastery. This series is brought to you by Surefire Local. In this episode, Mark goes into the reasons why businesses fail and how you can avoid falling into that category. Also, stay tuned for an interview with thought leader Vince Nardo, where Mark will talk to him about how his business, Reborn Cabinets, got started. Over to you, Mark. Hi, I'm Mark Richardson, and welcome to Remodeling Mastery. Remodeling Mastery is a podcast series that's designed to help you think about and reflect on your business. What I try to do is take different topics, topics that I think are pretty relevant in today's marketplace, as well as just overall thought-provoking that you can compare yourself and certainly your team and what you're doing with your business. This podcast series is supported by the National Association of the Remodeling Industry, NERI, as well as Professional Remodeler Magazine. And it's actually produced by my friends at Surefire Local. Today, my topic that I'm going to be getting into is one that oftentimes is a little bit more disturbing, a little bit more concerning on the part of folks thinking about their business in a very positive and healthy way. However, it's really, really important, and that is the whole subject of why do businesses fail. Now, what's unique, I think, about businesses in the modeling industry is oftentimes how you think about failures are really a little bit different than when you think about life or death when it comes to other elements in our lives. You know, oftentimes failure is not necessarily just black and white. It's really more the lack of success. It's sort of like as a baseball player, failing would be batting 200 versus batting 300. You still occasionally get some hits, but you're actually cut from the team because, in fact, your batting average is too low. When the remodeling industry, I think it's very similar to that in that it's not so much a matter of failing or succeeding, but it's a matter of how much lower the, that success rate is. So let's start a little bit more at a very general level about why remodeling businesses tend to fail or certainly flounder, have more challenging than other businesses that are out there. The first, I think, when you understand the remodeling industry, understand the remodeling business, it's probably one of the most easy entry businesses that you can get into. Now, when we talk about easy entry, what we're talking about is if you wake up one day and you decide you want to be in the remodeling industry, most of the time you could actually be literally launching into the remodeling business within two or three months after making that decision. Now, you compare that to other vocations or professions. In the medicine, obviously, you got many, many years of experience before you can practice medicine. In law, again, you have to go to law school. You have to pass certain boards. In engineering and in architecture, all these different professions require tremendous amount of education, but also different licensing and board requirements so that you can at least legally be able to practice. 
In the remodeling industry, obviously it depends on the state to state in terms of what the requirements are, but for the most part, some of the states are so lax that all you really need to do is get a simple business license, have a driver's license, and oftentimes we kid about this, is you do need to have a truck, a skill saw, and many homeowners out there think if you want to be in the remodeling business, you're going to need to have a dog. Now, that sounds very disparaging, but the truth of the matter is it's a very, very easy entry business. Now, the, the flip side of easy entry is it's very easy to also exit the business. So you find three out of five of the remodeling businesses out, the, out there out of business in five years. But what's even more interesting and scary is nine out of ten are out of business in ten years. So hanging in there for three to five years, generally speaking, uh, there's a higher probability that those businesses will be around than you hit five to ten years. Five to ten years, I think, is when you really start to experience, I think, the pain. So with all that being said, a remodeling business doesn't necessarily have a lot of challenges when it comes to exiting. Oftentimes, smaller remodeling businesses, they have very little real estate or office requirements. In some cases, they're obviously working out of the owner's home. Uh, in other cases, they might have a small lease that they can just kind of let play out as the projects wind down. There's also not a lot of capital requirement when it comes to investing in a tremendous amount of equipment. The education and training is not necessarily there. And the insurance requirements are relatively modest. So because it's easy entry, it also becomes fairly easy to exit. And that's why we see a lot of remodelers, oftentimes as they get a little bit kind of bruised and tired of being in the remodeling business, they start to think about other alternatives. And oftentimes closing your doors is simply a matter of handling certain types of project requirements, but then moving on from there and working for someone else or certainly retiring. So about 25 years ago, I would get a lot of requests from folks kind of wondering what it is that not only it takes to be successful in business, but also why do businesses actually fail? You know, this was as a result of those getting involved in some franchise or starting businesses that I would get these kind of questions. As I reflected on this subject quite a bit, I really thought about it, and that is, how can I boil this down to really three kind of key elements when it comes to why do businesses fail? If you think about this like a pot of water or a pot of soup and you let it boil and boil all the water off, what's left at the bottom? And I found at least there were three critical things that were left. What I want to do is kind of focus on each one of these, but have you really spend some time thinking about and reflecting how you not only are doing with your business, but also on those different initiatives and programs you've tried to put in place that you've wondered at least why they've been a little bit more challenged and why they haven't succeeded long term. The first one that I find is focus. You know, we're in times today, and this has also been the case in the past, we're in times today, if you want to be successful in any particular aspect of your business, you need to have kind of more of a laser type 
focus. You need to be uh, putting, I think, more of almost a, a rifle shot as opposed to a shotgun shot on what it is you're trying to achieve. You know, today, because the speed of things is so much faster, it makes it harder to focus than I think ever ever before. And it's when you get distracted from all the other balls in the air that you uh, get off of your focus. And when you're off of your focus, you're not really focused on the very fundamentals. You're not necessarily having a clear vision. You're not having that plan in place that's required to really give you kind of a little bit of a roadmap of what you're trying to achieve. You also aren't really visualizing, visualizing what is that goal, what is that destination, what is that end in mind. So today's focus is very, very hard. So that's number one, is you've got to have focus if you want to avoid the failure. Number two, which is kind of a cousin maybe of focus, but it's really quite different, and that is commitment. What I'm finding with businesses today and with the level of proliferation of choices and options out there, we're just bombarded by so many things. It very it makes it very difficult to have a commitment to a particular aspect or an element or even, quite frankly, a direction within the business itself. It's those businesses that are not only focused but are actually committed to an idea, committed to an office, committed to a market, committed to a particular client niche that I think tend to be more successful. You know, marriages have challenges and oftentimes not because there wasn't an initial commitment but also because the commitment changed. What I find in businesses, especially with partners in business, they oftentimes change their levels of commitment over time for all sorts of reasons, whether they're stresses or whether they're new opportunities that are out there. So if you don't have the level of sustainable kind of commitment to an idea or an element within the business that really keeps that passion and keeps that fire alive, then oftentimes it results in failure. The third element that you need to think about, I think, when it comes to why businesses fail is the whole subject of capital. Now, it's great to have focus and it's great to have commitment, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the time and the money to invest into something, chances are you're also going to potentially fail. Time and money really is very quantifiable. I oftentimes, when I'm talking and advising and coaching someone on the subject of a particular idea, I ask them, how much time is it going to take for you to successfully launch something? How much time is it going to take over a year, two years, three years? And if you can quantify the amount of time it's going to take, then you can actually ask yourself, where am I going to find that time? If you're already overwhelmed and busy, you probably won't have the time. So you have to figure out what am I going to take the time from or what am I going to deselect of what I'm presently doing so I can be more successful. The other element when it comes to capital is not just time, but it's also money. Money in this case is not necessarily a war chest, but you have to be making your decisions based on uh, the right business decision, especially when you're coming out of the gate, and not thinking about how much money is in your checking account that week. 
If you don't have the money, if you don't have the time, it's going to be one of those third legs of the stool that potentially cause you challenge. Now, if you think about that metaphor analogy of the stool, in this case, it takes all three legs of the stool if, in fact, you want to be successful, or the flip side of it, if, in fact, you're going to avoid the failure. So as I said earlier, this is a business that is relatively easy to get into, but it's also a business that's not that easy necessarily to be successful, and it's very easy to stumble and fail. And looking at the statistics, it's not a question of can you get into the business, it's more about sustainability in the business. So as I really think about this and I watch some of the best of the best out there, you know, I would say the majority of the businesses, if in fact you're listening to this podcast, if you're reading about this subject, if you're trying to focus on this, you're already in the top 10% of those businesses out there. So I really applaud you for that. However, it's really important, I think, to really make it a real priority to try to avoid the potholes, avoid the mistakes, and avoid the failures in business today. So I want to thank everybody for joining us with this particular podcast. I want to again thank the folks at the National Association of the Remodeling Industry for supporting this, as well as Professional Remodeler Magazine, and also my friends at Surefire for really putting this really world-class, I think, kind of thoughts and ideas together so you can really help to improve and take your business to the next level. Take care, everyone. Thank you, Mark. From what Mark just shared, I hope you are able to take that and make sure your business stays set up for success. Now, I want to introduce a thought leader interview between Mark and Vince Nardo, who is one of the most successful remodeling business leaders in the U.S. today. And he is the president of Reborn Cabinets located in Southern California. Reborn Cabinet specializes in kitchen and bath remodeling. Vince and Reborn were the 2013 Professional Remodeler of the Year. Take a listen. My first remodeling leader is a friend, Vince Nardo. He's also one of the most successful remodeling business leaders in the United States today. He's the president of Reborn Cabinets, located in Southern California. Reborn specializes in kitchen and bath remodeling. Vince and Reborn were the 2013 Professional Remodeler of the Year and highlighted on the magazine. Vince is on the board of the Remodeling Futures at Harvard University. He's a regular speaker and contributor for different activities, including Professional Remodeler Magazine. So I want to welcome Vince Nardo. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be here. So let's do this, Vince, if you don't mind, because I, I know you and certainly know your family and know the business fairly well. Most remodeling businesses evolved in some sort of interesting way, and I think your business is certainly not immune to that story as well. So why don't you start by telling us and our listeners a little bit more of the story of how Reborn sort of gave birth. Sure. Well, Mark, we have to kind of go back into the 70s for a little while. So it seems like a long time ago to many, but and probably uh, before many people on this po- uh, listen to this podcast were even born. 
But our family originally started in New York, and my dad is the youngest of 11 siblings, um, many of which come from a woodworking background. And in the 70s, they uh, decided that they wanted to move out of New York and really find another place to raise my brother and myself. And they kind of bought a trailer and at the time were on welfare and, and headed towards the West Coast. And for the next few years, we traveled into many, many states and my dad worked along the way. And when we ended up in California in the 70s, my dad had a gift like many remodeling contractors have, and that was working with his hand and specifically performing kitchen cabinet refacing. And then when we landed here in California, he started working for some other companies um, performing the refacing product. And then, like uh, again, like many remodeling companies, he decided, you know what? I'm smarter than my boss. I can do this better than my boss. I'm going to start my own thing. Excellent. So tell us a little bit more about the snapshot then of what Reborn is today, both in terms of, you know, sort of the number of employees, the different locations, just to give, I think, the listeners a little bit of context. Sure. So when it started back in 83, it was just my dad. And then it quickly grew out throughout the uh, the 90s, obviously, the boom. And we then moved from just being a refacing company to a full remodeling company performing solely kitchen and bath remodeling. And then fast forward through the next recession, you know, we took a step back like everybody else. And then we came out of that and we said, you know, we're going to look at this as an opportunity to take the company to the next step. And today, almost uh, 35 years later, we have grown to over 350 employees. We manufacture the products that we sell as far as the cabinetry products go. And we have six offices ranging from Northern California to Southern California and also in Las Vegas. So talk to us a little bit about the diversity of the products and projects that you do. Sure. So Reborn has three distinct divisions. Our one division is our Reborn Remodeling Specialist Division, and that division performs design, build, kitchen, and bath remodeling. So we will go in when a client wants to completely tear out their kitchen or their bathroom, and we'll work them through the design process and the installation process from start to end. Our next division, which is where the company was founded, is the Reborn Cabinets Division, and that division specifically focuses on kitchen cabinet and bathroom cabinet refacing and countertops. And then our last division is our Reborn Bath Solutions Division, which was formed to produce inexpensive one-day shower or bathtub remodeling, and that is our most aggressively growing division that we have today. Now, you say that that's aggressively growing. Is that aggressively growing because you're seeing a lot of opportunities within the bathroom? Can you give us sort of a, a, a little bit more of the why behind it? Because I think a lot of people are seeing a lot of buzz with bathrooms today. Sure. So we've seen, obviously, 30-something years in business. We've seen the business, you know, the trends change, the market change, the customer change. And what we've seen in the last six, seven years post-recession is a much more in, uh, aggressive attack on remodeling of bathrooms. And we found that the traditional bathroom we did pre-recession the $50,000, $70,000 bathroom was not as palatable for most people post-recession. So we looked at that and said, how are we going to be able to produce bathrooms for the majority of the people? And we came up with a cost-effective way to remodel bathrooms quickly, efficiently. And we now see the majority of our customers doing two or three of these bathrooms in their homes versus traditionally before only doing one kitchen because that's all they had. 
Interesting. Interesting. Now, you mentioned one of the key sort of differentiators for what you're doing is speed. H- how important do you think that is today? Well, we see the client, you know, with, with the technology changing from, you know, back in the day with the brick cell phone to the pager to email to smartphones, we've seen the consumer's response time shorten. The consumer today expects everything immediately. You know, we live in, live in an immediate world. If I want chips and salsa at my house, I make a phone call, I pick up the internet, and someone delivers it to my house in 25 minutes. So we're looking for that same speed and uh, efficiency in remodeling. So we've looked at that and said that the biggest opportunity we have in the remodeling industry is to be able to provide that same speed and efficiency in a kitchen or a bathroom remodel. And so that's created some interesting challenges in that we had to develop our company around the way of providing and using technology to give the customer what they wanted. So in in developing the technologies to address speed, uh, what what are maybe two or three examples of things that you've done or you've learned or you're doing as it relates to speed, uh, you know, leveraging technology? So the first thing we did was approximately five years ago, four to five years ago, we decided that we needed to go paperless and that in order to move the jobs faster, we had to eliminate the need for paper to change hands in the office or a paper contract to be turned back into the office. You know, many times with outside salespeople, for example, most companies are waiting for a sales rep to come back to the office to deliver a contract before they can process it. And in many cases, that could be as much as one day. And in this world of remodeling, one day is a lot. So we decided to go completely paperless in the home. We use a, electron, a, a tablet, an iPad. We, there, we complete all contracts paperless. And then as the contracts are actually being completed in the home, they're immediately going to our office to start processing. So that was the one thing that we had to do in order to make us quicker. The next thing we had to do was then we had to go paperless inside the office. So instead of printing these contracts out and relying on people to um, get the contract on their desk to perform the next task, we had to develop internal systems, computer systems, that would move these projects along rapidly and not rely on a um, paper document. So sort of to put it in simplistic terms, many businesses operate on a um, push system. So where we have to wait for the person before us to push it to us before we do the job. If that person lags or takes longer, we don't even know the project exists until they push it to us. We decided to change our systems to a pull system where the next phase or the next process that has to happen, they know about the project even before it comes to them and they're requesting it if it doesn't hit their desk by the right date. Now, you you, you talk about the technologies in, in, in such a comfortable way that it makes so much sense, I think, to anyone listening to this. However, you must have had a little bit of rub or some challenges when it comes to, you know, some of those veterans, some of those people that uh, were so used to high touch or, you know, paper kind of methods. Any particular either insights or, or things that you could share that, that might be how you cracked the code in terms of converting sort of that, you know, old school kind of person to more of a, you know, here and today technology person. Sure. So 
some of the challenges we saw, and you know, we have employees that have been with us for 25 years or more, and they've grown with the company and they've seen the company change. So one thing we had to do, or I had to do, was I had to instill a culture that a company that is going to be moving forward all the time. So I basically told the staff and told all our employees that, hey, we're a company that is always going to be changing. So if that makes you uncomfortable, get comfortable because what we do today, we will not be doing tomorrow. So that took a long time for people to really grasp what that meant. And so once we got them to understand that, that helped us make new changes and implement new things without big surprises from the staff of saying, you know, this won't work or this is, this is inefficient. When we first went to doing paperless and having tablets everywhere, we got the pushback from staff like this is slow, this is not going to work, our customers aren't going to appreciate it. And so for the first initial step, we ran concurrent paper and electronic documents and we gave right. them the opportunity to do both. And then eventually we just said, this day stops and we stopped printing any paper documents. So you sort of pulled off the Band-Aid and said, okay, we know this works. We know this is effective. You've got the buy-in from many of your people. And for those laggers out there who need to really step up and move towards paperless, you know, now is the time. Or or I assume you you probably had a few people that couldn't adapt. We did, and they believe it or not, we didn't really lose anybody specifically to changing from paper to paperless. But I will also give everybody a word of advice. When you're moving and shifting your company to a, a significant change, don't you have to be you have to put uh, earplugs in. You have to at some point not listen to everybody because I can tell you that from all the changes we've made in the company and the changes where people said it would not work and we tried to make different concessions for different people. The best thing we done, we should have done, or the best thing we did do was just make the change and push the people into using it. And most importantly, we found that the best way to get buy-in on anything we do is to teach people the why and not just tell them the what. So not just tell everybody, hey, you're going paperless, but really explain, which is the very slow process of telling them the why we're making these changes and how they're gonna benefit everybody and ultimately benefit the customer. You know, I think you bring up a topic that doesn't necessarily relate specifically just to technology, but I think it's an important one as a thought leader, uh, Vince, and that is sort of when do you sort of uh, put the stake in the sand and it not be sort of a democracy and, and it's really a little bit more of a, a dictatorship in a positive way because you know as a visionary and as a thought leader, what is best for them? Uh, how do you sort of know where that line is? How do you get sort of the right buy-in when it comes to the team? Well, the first thing we did was we made sure that our leadership team understood that and believed in it themselves. Right. So start with the leaders. Yes. So we had to make sure that the first level of leaders in the company really understood that, you know, we can't listen to all the rumbling we hear all the time. As a group, we know what's best for the company and we're going to initiate and affect these changes despite the grumbling. You know, we do have a, th uh, 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 a saying around this company, we can't be everything to all people. And so we have to kind of look at the things that are going to be the best for the team and the best for the majority of the people and institute those best practices. 
You know, Vince also, uh, in addition to certainly being recognized as one of the professional Romano thought leaders, but also uh, with the magazine, he is also a member of the, of the Harvard Remodeling Futures. And Remodeling Futures at Harvard obviously looks forward in terms of some of the different issues and challenges out in the marketplace. Uh, I want to ask Vince, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball and I know you're not psychic, but is your sort of looking out, not necessarily in 2017, but 2018 and beyond, what, what are some of those challenges that, that you see? Or what, are, what are, was the top, let's say, one, two, or three challenges that you see that, that you think is good for, you know, our listeners to at least just keep an eye on in their radar? The biggest challenges we're seeing and that we're going to continue to see, well, the number one challenge is going to be recruiting and employees. And that, you know, we've, we've seen, obviously, we're getting back into a very, very prosperous market. We've, we've reached that. We're, we're pre-recession right now. And people are buying, people are spending. And when that happens, as we all know, the remodeling industry gets busy. And one of the challenges we have is all the people that we had, the older mechanics, the older technicians, the older carpenters, the older people in the remodeling industry, they're not in it anymore. They left when the recession happened and they didn't come back. They simply retired. The challenge we have today is we don't have schools or education teaching people to go into this blue collar work. Everybody's go to college, get a degree, be a business student. But that leaves us as remodeling contractors in a very precarious position. So some of the things we've had to do was we've had to decide that we needed to go out and educate these, these um, students, and educate these young people that you can make a very, very good living working in the remodeling business. And we then there created a university, if you will, to teach prospective people about this business, teach them the trade, teach them the craft, and coach them and nurture them along the way to earning a very, very good um, living. The other thing we've had to do is um, is look forward at the economy. And, you know, I hate when I hear that we're going to hit a recession. I hate when I hear the economy shaky. I've been through two recessions as my um, leadership at this company, and it's really, really simple. Don't listen to it. And someone's going to buy your product. Now, where in your little community, you might have only gotten – you may – you know, before a recession hits, you may have two people buying your product. And then when a recession hits, there might be only one person buying your product. So I have a very, very simple philosophy. If there's one person in my community buying it where I needed to get two, I'm going to move to the community next door and pick up that one over there. So I'm going to be back at my two. And so that's kind of the very simplistic way that I look at the economy. And I fail to listen or don't, and I want to ignore what I hear and say that, you know, Business owners and entrepreneurs have to have an attitude of make it happen. And if you can adopt that mentality of I will make it happen, then you can live through or go through anything you've ever uh, would have to deal with as being a business owner. You know, I think this sort of relates, and I know you have this attitude, and I would argue one of the things that separates Vince and the other thought leaders from the majority of the pack is they, they, they take the blend of the facts and figures, but they mix it with the emotion. And, you know, they really are the vo voice of reason, not only for the companies, but also for their clients as well. 
And one of our other thought leaders, Brian Elias, which is a friend of Vince and certainly a friend of mine from Hanson in the Mich Michigan area, when he was given an award a few years ago, he began sort of his acceptance speech saying, you know, I, I'm from Detroit, and I understand that Detroit's had some tough times, but we chose not to participate in the recession. And I, I'll never forget him saying that, and certainly it's sinking in, because I, I really believe, I think that's one of the differences between Vince and certainly the rest, and that's one bit of advice I, I, I'd like to at least interpret he's sharing, is that, you know, choose not to participate in all the negative stuff, and chances are you're going to come out ahead. Would you agree with that, Vince? Absolutely agree with that, and I think that is, you know, an entrepreneur has a mentality different from everybody else. They have a mentality of, you know, we're going to accomplish it, we're going to make this happen, and they are willing to take the risks. If, if those out that are listening to this podcast aren't willing to take the risks with their companies, they're never going to achieve the goals that they really want in their life. Excellent point. Now, you highlighted something a little bit earlier that I want to go a little deeper in because I think uh, intellectually most of our listeners get the concept of, of certainly university, college. However, you brought it to life, and, and, and one of the cultural elements of Reborn and, and Vince Nardo is that, you know, training really is an investment that they're making into the people, not an expense. So talk to us a little bit about your philosophies and, and your thought processes towards training. Some of the things we've seen with the, you know, as the business has matured and the generations have changed that are coming to work at the company, you know, there's, there's one thing that's remained consistent in this company. That's the leadership. The thing that's remained inconsistent is the generation of people we have working in it. So we've had to look at the company and say that we need to adopt or change the company to change with the generations of people we have working with it. We all know the term millennial. We all know we have many of them in our company. And so we had to look at that group and say, how do we keep that group engaged in the workforce? When you back up to my dad's, you know, my dad's in his 80s. And when my dad came to work, the only acknowledgement he needed that he was doing a good job was he got a paycheck. That was it. Pay me, I know I'm doing a good job. Fire me, I know I'm not. And while that may seem very simplistic, that was the way it was done. Today, when we look at the group of employees that we have, they don't view employment that same way. They expect to get paid. So everything else that you need to give them is what keeps them working for you. So we institute a culture of build a winning team. Our number one core value is to build a winning team. And when we look at our staff and our teammates, we focus specifically on how do we make them better at what they do? How do we give them and feed their, their need and their want for learning? And we do that through our university, and we have four people in that that are dedicated instructors that teach classes on a regular basis. And then we looked at it and said, how do we create a culture around the company that is more than just sit in front of your computer, go on a job and swing a hammer, but brings all the other elements such as fun activities, group outings, and generally changes the focus from work, work, work to what the millennials want and what the younger generation wants, which is a, a day of work and a little bit of play. So we had to bring that play and that learning into the work, work, work atmosphere without decreasing our productivity. 
So what's an example of that, that that's a little bit more uh, tangible for our listeners to hear? Sure. So with our millennial staff and all of our staff in general, one of the things that we do on a regular basis is we hold classes that they can come into, into our Reborn University classes and learn and grow into a new trade. So if a call center operator wants to eventually move into sales, they can move into some of those training classes and experience what that is to be able to see if that's something they want to move into. That's how we feed their inherent uh, need to grow and, and prosper. We do that through our university. Another way we keep our staff engaged is constant activities. You know, you go back to my parents who started this company where there were no activities in your company, right? There were no business. There, weren't, there was nothing, quote unquote, fun. It was work, work, work. And fast forward to today, you know, just this next week, we're going to be having an employee appreciation day where all the employees can buy tickets for a charity and they can throw water balloons and pies at myself and the senior leadership team. So that's a way to get them engaged. We have Excellent. a baseball outing this next week as well, where we take the company to a baseball game. So we do a lot of these activities on a regular basis. So I think as most of our listeners know that, uh, you know, I'm like Vince, a, a, a big theme guy, that the themes are what, you know, is a little bit of the glue that holds the company together. It's sort of the, the vision. And obviously, I, I highlight that in my book, Fit to Grow, the 12 business themes for growth. Vince has a series of themes or a series of, you know, top core values that, he works with and trains his team, and there's 10 of these core values that I think oftentimes, while they're slightly different dialects than some of the business themes that I talk about, there's a lot of, you know, connection and common denominators. Vince, if you had to just highlight, you know, uh, one or two of your favorite themes that, 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 you know, is something that really, really makes a difference uh, in terms of your core values, uh, that you like to, you know, just make sure everyone is sort of drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak, uh, what would they be? Well, the first thing with core values is, you know, everybody, every company listening, I would bet the majority of them have some sort of a list of things that define who they are. And that's well and great for everybody to have. But the question you got to ask yourself as a business owner or a business leader is, do, does your staff practice what you're trying to preach? So a couple of things we do here at Reborn is we make it mandatory that in every meeting, the manager of that meeting has to cycle through the group and everybody has to recite or, or share an example of one of the core values that happened that prior week. And everything that we do when we're dealing with an employee on a um, positive or negative reinforcement has to be tied back to a core value. So we make sure that our core values are in front of everybody all the time. So there's a couple of our core values that are really important. Obviously, I already spoke about the first one, which was build a winning team. And if I were to emphasize another one, um, the, the next one would be probably the one that we have in the middle, which is do what you say you will. And while that seems simplistic in the terms, we refer to that here at Reborn as, you know, you need to do what you say you will. So if you're going to show up to work at 7 o'clock, you need to be here at 7 o'clock. You're going to be at a client's house at 9 o'clock. You need to be at a house at the client's house at nine o'clock. So we put everybody, we, 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 we um, rate everybody's performance against that core value. And are they doing what they say you will? 
And from a management standpoint, it makes it really easy because when an employee doesn't do what they say they will, we, we simply bring them back to that core value and remind them of it. Excellent. Excellent. So Vince has a series of these core values. Again, you can read some of them, certainly in Fit to Grow. I would also encourage you, you know, to really search. I mean, so many different companies. But as Vince is talking about this, it's so important that, that you not have them, but you also write it down and you don't keep them a secret. Uh, because your folks, I think, will stand up and salute and get aligned with it but you, you, you can't keep it a secret. Vince, I want to shift gears just slightly and talk about another topic or subject that I think is really important to a lot of people listening. And it's important to the people listening, whether they're an employee or whether they're an owner of a family business. You know, as I've really studied of the professional remodeling companies, the roots and even the structure of many are family businesses. Probably about 60% of the home improvement community is in fact family business. And even a higher percentage of that really came from more of a family business type of structure. Needless to say, you have Vince as the president. Uh, Anthony Nardo is, is the CFO and he's uh, uh, partnered in the business with Vince. But also you have your parents uh, Brenda and Vinny that are uh, part of the ownership structure. Why don't you share uh, a little bit about sort of lessons learned, I think, as, uh, you know, how you've navigated successfully with a family business? Well, you know, as I sit here and think about it, it just came to my mind that the problem with the term family business is this isn't a family business. This is a family with a business. Excellent. There's, there's a distinct difference there because when you put the word family business together, it almost implies that the family and the business are one and they're right. not. The family is a separate entity than the business. So we, mom made sure that very early on in the business, we knew not to bring the business to the family, meaning that when we were non-work and we were at home or we were you know, together as a group, we were forbidden from talking business. And likewise, when we were at work, we were forbidden from bringing family matters into the work. And once we established those lines and then we respected each other for our uh, hierarchy in the family, but also our hierarchy in the business, we were able to make sure we didn't bring those things together. And, you know, many family businesses fail. And they fail because they cannot draw a line between the word family and business. Excellent. Excellent. So really separate church and state, uh, so to speak, when it comes to family business. That's one bit of advice. And any other uh, advice in terms of, you know, as you, as you talk about the hierarchy within families and business, because that's a fairly normal thing, whether it's brothers and sisters or parents. Um, you know, reconciling, reconciling that hierarchy, uh, having the right levels of respect and communication is really sort of a tricky thing. Any, any tips for the listeners? Well, some of the tips I would say is that, you know, absolutely no matter what, when the family matters seem like they need to be brought in the business, you need to protect your staff from that. If you're going to have a heated discussion with a family member at work, it needs to be done in private. You yep. also need to learn to respect each other. 
you know, I, my brother and myself run this company together. We're here every single day. He's the CFO and I'm the president. Now we're brothers, but at the same time, we both respect each other in our business positions, meaning that he's a CFO. If it's a related issue that has to do with his responsibility as CFO, I heed to those and I'm the president. So he knows that if there's something that I need to make a decision on, he's not going to publicly second guess it or publicly criticize it. He's going to respect it. And as we've grown now into this business, we're getting the next generation of our kids into the business. You know, I have a son that works here full time and a daughter that works here part time. And so we've been able to bring them in and not have them fall into the traditional quote unquote family business track. Excellent. Excellent. So let's let's move towards maybe a little bit of a wrap up here, but you know, still some real meat on the bones that I think need to be addressed, and that is uh, success. You know, obviously, you know, you see a lot of uh, growth, you see a lot of types of products and services, those kind of things. But you know, what? How would you maybe articulate for folks out there? You know, what what do you see as more success in business today versus the past? Well, I think success, you know, and this is going to be different for each person and their, and their reasonings for wanting to be an entrepreneur and own a, own a company. But I look at success as a opportunity to provide me the time and the money to do the things that I want to do with my family. So it provides me the security knowing that I can leave the company for days or a week or two weeks and be confident that the company will be here when I get back. You know, this, this company does run without a Nardo or one of our family members involved. So if we're not here, it's still, it's its own organism. It still does the things it can do. And I think that's really the true definition of success. That is your business run without you being involved in it. I, we've become to be more of just the people that steer the business in certain directions rather than the people that drive the business in certain directions. So I think for me, that's ultimately what is success. And obviously comes the financial end of it and being able to be confident and financially secure. Now, most entrepreneurs would argue they're going to be financially secure no matter what they do. And I really believe that same thing. I've never worried about a recession or a financial issue to um, hurt my family. And that comes with really confidence in yourself and being secure in your ability to make decisions and ability to make things happen. Excellent. Excellent. So uh, as we wrap up, Vince, this conversation, and this has been extremely valuable, and I hope, you know, the listeners are feeling the same as well. And, you know, at some point, hopefully, if they're out in Southern California, they'll, uh, you know, give you a call or stop by and see your uh you know, big showroom and, and, and opportunity out there. Uh, if Are there any, you know, as you get a little bit of gray hair and you sort of think about things in a little bit wiser way, um, you know, any final tips, advice for those companies out there that are yearning for growth, that want to see, you know, a little bit more balance, and any of those things that I think is, is, is that are sort of, whirling around in Vince's head that, that you could share with them. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for the compliment for just saying a little gray hair because I think my uh, family <laughs> is completely go. gray. <laughs> but some of the things that I would say, you know, 
for those that are yearning for growth is number one, and, and you say this in your books, and you know, I've learned this a lot from you, is be a student of success. And you have to be willing to want to study and learn from others. And there's a, you know, I wouldn't be where I'm at or this company wouldn't be where it's at if I hadn't reached out to other people in the industry and been humble enough to say, I don't know what I'm doing or I don't know how to do this. Can I see how you're doing it and can I learn? So I've been very much a student of other companies and really looking at how they're doing it and what are they doing and what are the best practices and really being able to pick from different companies things and attending industry events. You know, I've often been challenged by my wife and my family for having gone out and attended so many of these industry events because I, I, the one thing I know for sure is I don't know what I don't know. So I have to be a student of that and I encourage my staff and I'll encourage everybody out there listening, you need to get out of your business. There's a lot of people in this industry that will share with you their challenges and share with you the, the, the different roads they've gone down and use that as an opportunity to learn for yourself and to make your business better. Excellent. Well, again, I want to thank Vince Narda, one of our remodeling thought leaders, and it is a very defined group that we have, which certainly includes Larry Green and Tom Kelly and Rob Levin and Andy Wells and others uh, that will be on future uh, podcasts and, and certainly sharing their own stories from different different perspectives. But, you know, as, as, as Vince said, he is really a student of success. He truly believes that, you know, he is in control of his destiny, his company's destiny, and, uh, you know, it's really, really looking out, you know, to the future. So, again, I want to thank, you know, Professional Remodeler for making this possible. Uh, professional Remodeler is, is, is one of those not only thought leaders with certainly Sal Alfano and Tony Mancini and, and, and Adam Grubb and the team, but also uh, they are putting together the tools I think that will help you be successful. Needless to say, this podcast is just one of many of those tools. Uh, I also want to thank uh, Surefire Local for uh, helping us bring this to you. Uh, if we didn't have the the technology and the delivery mechanism, and that's really what their specialty is. It's not only certainly the marketing elements, but it's also their ability to help us create tools like this. I certainly uh, uh, thank them as well. So I want to, you know, encourage you to give us some feedback. Read back to myself, Mark, Mark Richardson, uh, the professional remodeler. Uh, if you have any feedback, insights, uh, we always want to try to help you and we'll be sending out another uh, episode of this uh, within the next 30 days of Remodeling Thought Leaders. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening in to episode 103 of Mark G. Richardson's Remodeling Mastery, brought to you by Surefire Local. We hope you enjoyed this week's topic and can take away some insightful information from the interview with Vince Nardo. Also, be sure to subscribe to your to Remodeling Mastery on your favorite podcast app. Thanks again, and we hope to see you next time.